Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Elias Josh. He is a Palestinian Lebanese Australian journalist and editor, a former editor of Star Observer, Australia's longest running LGBTQ outlet. He writes for, among others, The Guardian and The New Arab. His memoir, Coming Up Palestinian, was anthologized in Arab, Australia, and other stories on race and identity, published by Picador. And in his latest work, he has edited a just-released anthology, This Arab is Queer, published by Saki. Ilias, delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Now, let me begin by repeating what I wrote about uh, This Arab is Queer in our summer reading list that we published uh, in our newsletter last week. I said, you have, with great skill and sensitivity, edited a book that is refreshing, provocative, challenging, disturbing, and amusing, all the elements that good art and good writing should be. And it is a book that is gutsy, really gutsy. I want to ask you, what was the motivation for you to bring this powerful collection of essays together into a book? I mean, first and foremost, publishing a book has always been a dream of mine. And I mean, I'm still working on a novel that's in the sort of in the background at the moment. But I guess in 2019, in the lead up to the first lockdown that we had for the pandemic in spring 2020, I, I went through a phase where I read like all, all these incredible anthologies. For example, The Good Immigrant for the UK and US editions and Our Women on the Ground by Zahra Hankir and The Things I Would Tell You, which is another um, it's an anthology of Muslim women writers that Saki published, the one that, the one that Saki published last year is We, we Write in the Stars, which is a, an anthology of female Arab writers and um, uh, writing sex and lust and uh, breaking taboos. And um, also in 2019, I just happened to be published in a different anthology called Arab Australian Other, back in Australia. And um, I, I was really happy, to, I was really lucky to have a chapter there called Coming Out Palestinians. So reading all these anthologies and getting involved, in, being actually involved in an anthology myself, just sort of, sort of led to a light bulb moment where I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could do my own anthology. And it sort of led me to think about how the global community of, of queer Arabs have been represented or misrepresented in the media. For example, uh, like when I was the editor of Star Observer, uh, I remember using Wire's copy for articles around ISIS's reign of terror in Syria and Iraq and their infamous and horrific accounts of throwing gay men off rooftops, among other things. And I remember reports of Egypt's regime storming a bathhouse around 2014, 2015. And I'm, I'm not saying that the media should not have been reporting on them. They, these things definitely need to be reported on. It's just that the way the focus was always on, the, on them, on these stories being sensationalist, and the way these stories almost always had an underlying kind of Islamophobia running through them and racism. And there was barely any, ever any understanding as to why state-sanctioned homophobia existed, barely any mention of the work of activists on the ground. And I just felt like our community in the Arab world was just not given the justice to be, put, to be portrayed with nuance and dignity. And I felt like we were being spoken over rather than being given a platform to speak for ourselves. And also, like, just thinking of that, and also while I was editor at Star Observer, I had some personal anecdotal moments where I just felt like there was a lot of erasure of queer Arabs in queer media and in queer, med- in queer communities as a whole, at least in Australia, where, I, where I'm from. So, I mean, definitely things are a lot better now. There's more awareness of the queer community being more 
active in highlighting the intersectional identity that comes with being queer and, and how everyone's different and what have you. But still today met with uncomfortable silences from people when I tell them I am gay and Arab, or, you know, better yet, when I tell them I'm gay and Palestinian. This idea that we can be both or, and the fact that like, I love being both some, it's something that doesn't fit in the narrative of people's, in people's mind. Um, a lot of people just don't, can't seem to compute the idea that we can be both and enjoy being both. We, we, we have this ease of being able to exist and love being able to exist with, with these multiple dualities and what have you. And I think that, that there's a common narrative that we're seem, we seem to feel like we have to choose between the two when I think that's absolute, you know, that's absolute nonsense. And also, on the flip side, don't get me started on the cultural stigma and rampant homophobia that exists in our community itself. So um, I can go on forever about that. So I guess in both contexts, there's an implied expectation where I should only be gay and that's it, or be Palestinian and that's it, rather than... And it just got me to... And for a while, up until... Basically, up until I moved to London six years ago, there was a long time where I was like, compartmentalising my identity rather than, you know, embracing it as one whole mess, a lovely mess, and, you know, um, it is what it is, and that, this is who I am. So I guess, you know, when I reflected on my, on my personal experiences and when I reflected on how the media represented queer Arabs and the fact that, you know, I, coming, me coming from journalism and me feeling confident that I could do, be an editor uh, of a book, I just thought it's like, you know, sat down and started writing the uh, proposal um, during that first lockdown. Well, I'd, um, I'd call out a COVID dividend, not that there were too many of them, it is. But uh, can you talk about the contributors and how you went about um, securing them? It is a stellar cast. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of people that followed on social media, um, people that big fans of for a long time. I mean, while I, while I was writing the proposal, I mean, it took a few weeks for me to get the proposal together. But while I was writing, I start. I just opened up a notes app on my phone, and um, uh, basically started listing names of people who I thought could potentially contribute to the anthology. And I initially had a small list of, of familiar names of queer Arab writers, activists, and creatives that I was already a fan of. But as I got into stuck, as I got sucked into social media over the lockdown because I had nothing else to do for half the time, I started to notice names I had forgotten to add, and started to following started following people that I hadn't heard of before, and I just added, my list just grew. It just grew to about 40 names on the notes app. And then, and then I felt like they, they represented the length and breadth of the diverse Arab communities and countries. And I, mean, I was personally very keen to ensure this representation came through from the very start, as I wanted to avoid that very easy trap of creating a book that reflected the huge cultural capital that Egyptians and Lebanese have. I wanted something that really showed the proper diversity of the Arab world. So um, this is how I sort of came across all, all the names and the writers. And some of them I already, some of, a couple of them I had met before briefly while they were in London, so in, back in Sydney as well, where I'm from. And, but the vast majority of them I'd never met before because they all live in North America or in the Middle East. But yeah, some of them I, I followed, we followed each other, so we were already in contact anyway. Some of them I, I contacted them for the first time when I reached out to them to invite them to be part of the anthology. So... Um, yeah, I guess I've got Twitter and Instagram to thank for me, for, for putting me in touch with all these, all these fantastic writers, and I'm uh, very lucky with that. Now, the, the situation for LGBTQ plus people in the Arab world is changing in many ways for the better, but also it could just as easily go the other way. Do you think this is a particularly acute moment, one where great danger and great hope 
are almost equally poised? Um, look, that's a really good question. I've been I've been thinking about how to respond to this, and um, I really don't know what's the best way to go about. It. I mean, I I agree with you. There's definitely change, but you know, change is never easy. And as we've seen for the past few weeks or around Pride Month, there's been a uh, a massive uh, wave of crackdowns in the LGBTQ community across the Arab world. You know, just last week, the Iraqi parliament decided to introduce a law to ban LGBT identity. Uh, a few weeks before that, you had the Lebanese authorities cracking down on, you know, LGBTQ gatherings and stuff and what have you for Pride. And, um, you know, the, the UAE government has also pressured Amazon to sort of not sell anything that has queer identity or queer labelling. Amazon uh, toppled under that pressure. And also you've got the burning of the rainbow in Saudi Arabia. There's like a big, it's a big wave happening at the moment. So I guess every time there's a step, there's one, there's two steps forward. There seems to be like one step back at the same time. And this is, it's not the first time this happens. It happens on a almost like an almost on an annual basis around Pride Month. It's so the these authorities suddenly realise, oh, remember that. Oh, you know that we've got some queer Arabs in the, in this country. We need to do something about it, even though we've we've, exi- we've existed there since you know the, for, since the dawn of time. So yeah, so I guess we are we are coming at a point where the more visibility we have, the more risk, the more at risk the community is in terms of danger because of the the rampant homophobia, the state sanctioned discrimination and crackdown on the community and the lack and complete lack of protection on a legal basis or anything like that. So yes, it's dangerous, but I think at the same time, there's a growing number of allies coming forward to stand up for the community. There's a growing number of progressive people um speaking up for the community and saying, you know, we deserve our human rights and what have you. So I guess this in some ways just like a it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's definitely progress, but at the same time, the people who don't want that progress are doubling down. So, yeah, it's just hard to answer. I mean, I, I'm, the answer I've given you now isn't, does, isn't, doesn't have the nuance it deserves. There's, we can, there's so much more to it, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. And I feel like what I've just said now is quite reductive, and I don't want it to be reductive because it's much more than that. Every country's got its own political context. Every country's got its own uh, socioeconomic nuances that, play a part in the the local queer rights movement. But this this new wave that you describe, why, why is it happening now, do you think? See, that's the thing. I don't think it's new. I think it's, it's, it feel like it's been heightened in the past few weeks and it all seems to be happening one after the other. But I think it's important to realise that it's not a new it's not a new thing. This is, this is something that happens quite regularly in the Middle East and North Africa. And it almost always, and it seems to be a pattern that it happens around June, July, when the rest, when the rest of the world is celebrating Pride Month. And the Arab world, the, these authorities in the Arab world just seem to sort of want to use Pride Month as a way to reassert their power and to reassert their, you know, inverted commas, traditional values to keep their supporters on side with them. And um, they tap into the the cultural stigma that comes with homosexuality and trans and transphobia and stuff like that to sort of prop themselves up further and also to distract from the wider, more important issues that face in their countries at the moment. And I don't have to tell you, there's a there's so many crises happening right now in uh, Lebanon and there's, or there's inflation and soaring food insecurity in Egypt and, and among, um, there's a, a range of other issues affecting the Gulf countries as well. But these authorities zero in on the queer community as a way to say, oh, look, we're still doing something, we're still achieving something, we're still working for you, 
but they're really it's just a distraction. Yeah, it's, it's I guess I think it's important to realize it's not a new thing, but it just definitely seems to happen on a on a yearly basis in June, July. But having said that, it's not exclusive to those months. There's these crackdowns that happen all the time. A few years back in, into 2017, when Mashlut Leila had their concert in Cairo, that was in September, and there was a massive crackdown on people who rose who, who raised the rainbow flag. Just just that sheer moment of joy was scared the authorities. So the authorities constantly do this because they're obvious. A lot of these uh, powers that are in place, the governments that are in place across the Arab world, they've got the uh, support of the Western backing to be there. But also some of them come in response to these, they, this, this rise of nationalism, I guess, in some ways, is also a response to Westernization. A lot of, there's a, it's a common phenomenon across the Arab cultures to think that being gay or being trans or what have you is a Western import, it's a Western idea, which is absolute bullshit because you just need to look at the ancient history of Egypt, you need to look at the ancient history of Palestine and Jordan, go back to the Nabataeans, the Phoenicians, the ancient Egyptians to see that we've existed for, for thousands of years over time. Yeah, it's just, it's just a weird thing how there's so much stigma because people see it as a Western import, but at the same time, like, you know, a lot of these laws exist because of colonial uh, history of these countries, from, from, namely from France and England. So um, it's a very, very messy situation in terms of legalities and the way the, the Western powers prop up a lot of these governments. But at the same time, there's a, a grassroots uh, movement of activism that we need to sort of uh, remember that they are there. There are people there who are working for their community and have and got and have they have allies supporting them to change things for the better. You make a, you make a very interesting point about this uh, this new nationalism and and the sense that uh, somehow the celebration of the LGBTQ plus community is a Western import when in fact you know as as with every other culture gayness has been around forever. I wanted to ask you this. Ilias, I found the frankness and the openness about sex and sexuality was both startling and refreshing. I, I found it a statement of liberation. And I wonder if that was something, a through line, if you will, that you as an editor were looking for. Look, yeah, liberation is a, is a big part of who we are, I guess. So, yes, I mean, it, it's not, it wasn't exactly on the forefront of my mind that we are I mean, I don't see myself as some sort of torchbearer for the queer liberation movement across the Arab world. Uh, I think it's really important to, and and, and I'm I'm not sure how the the 18 contributors in the book don't see themselves that way as well, because we're very much of the idea that you know we're just one of many many people who are doing the what we can to help bring this change about, and I don't, I don't think people should look to us as the leaders or or the definitive. A voice of the community because there's so many voices in the community that need to be that deserve to be heard and listened to so yeah i guess this book in some way does play a role in bringing about the liberation and bringing about positive change but i think for me from my perspective I th- my most important part is that it starts a discussion and it's gonna and it starts if it's going to start uncomfortable discussions, then so be it. But it's going to be uncomfortable for a certain group of people. It's not going to be uncomfortable for us, for members of the queer community. Yeah, so I guess, you know, change change always starts when people start talking. And if people start talking about who we are from this book, then I guess, you know, my job is done in the, in, in the reason of why I published this book. But yeah, I don't, I don't want it to, I don't, I think to think that it's just, 
a part of the queer liberation movement. I just didn't really think that far ahead, to be honest, <laughs> and uh, a bit uncomfortable with that because I don't really see myself as an activist, an advocate, yes, but I'm not an organiser. I, you know, while I attend protests, for sure, I don't, I don't really consider myself as an activist because I don't, I don't organise things, but I am an advocate. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting distinction. Uh, it is I, between activist and advocate, and you surely are a, a superb advocate. The, the, the book opens with two extraordinary lines that uh, they begin. Mona Al-Tahawi's The Decade of Saying All That I Could Not Say. Uh, quote, I'm writing this almost exactly 10 years after I died. I'm able to write this because I died 10 years ago. Now, that's what I call a, a great opener. She had me. The book had me right there. But she delineates, as to all the other essayists, a version of courage that claims or reclaims identity, one that I associate with young Arabs coming of age in the Arab Spring and those who've come of age since. Now, many, including the authoritarians of MENA region, will argue the Arab Spring has died. What would you say to that? I'm no uh, expert or commentator on the Arab Spring per se. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I mean, I've, I've heard that comment before as well, and and I guess the the whole idea of the Arab Spring, from what I understand, seems to be seems to be more of a Western thing, because these these movements for change, these movement these movements for a democratic future in our world, they've they've existed there for a long time before the so called Arab Spring even came about. So I guess they would call the Arab Spring because it just suddenly became this all these different countries that happened it just all happened at once in one year. So yeah, I mean I don't, I don't know whether it's fair to say that it's died, but I don't know whether it's fair to say that it's still around because I, I, I don't know enough about it, um, the political side of things. But I think, it's, I think it's important to have hope that change is definitely still on the horizon. It's very important to cling on to the idea that, you know, change is possible as well, and it's positive change is possible. And we, can't, we shouldn't lose sight of that. And the fact that all the change that, that has happened before all these military coups came on board to sort of revert things back... Uh, all these changes that did happen, they were led by the people, they were established by the people without any interference from global powers. And I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge, to say that, you know, we don't need this Western interference to bring about positive change for these countries. Yeah, well, I, I just, for me, the, the book, that, that kind of vitality uh, and, and that kind of, the, the courage and, and the determination to speak out you know, speaks to me anyway, uh, about what young people in particular were attempting to achieve in the Arab Spring, and that it's comfortable for these uh, authoritarian regimes to say it's over, it's finished. And, yeah. and, and, and anybody who challenges that is an enemy of the state. So, you know, one yeah. of the things that, 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 that this book speaks to me is the, the attempt to paint the other, to create the other as an enemy, is something that authoritarian regimes always do. And, and you know, you spoke about this, this current wave of repression. I mean, it's, it, it's and, and tied into this sort of nationalist surge. And it's an easy thing to pick out the other and to demonize. And, and what was refreshing for me in this book is this is a statement, it's a very positive, very powerful statement. And I associate that with the very best instincts of, of the Arab Spring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, 
I mean, I, I, it's definitely a positive thing. I mean, and I feel like these writers did, especially Mona, because she did sort of use the Arab Spring in Egypt, the revolution in Egypt as a as a springboard for her opening chapter. And uh, I, and I do wonder if many of these writers would have had the confidence to have shared, the sto- to shared their stories for the book, whether this so-called Arab Spring happened or not. But, but you know, I, I don't, I don't want to speak on behalf of the writers. I mean, they can, they can speak for themselves. And... Yeah, so I mean, it's it's. I guess I didn't really think of it that way. I guess I guess it just happened by pure accidents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good, that's a really interesting uh, way to engage with the with the book. The essay by Hamid Asino, the lyricist and frontman for Masru Leila, reminded me of the power of music, and and they wrote at one point, "To sing is to insist that your body matters, that it is greater than language." You know, again, I look at, at, at the way in which people like Mohammed bin Salman are shaping culture in their image. And, and, and they would say that uh, this definition of culture is one that they don't, they don't accept. That's the MBSs of this world. Um, do you think they're winning that battle? I mean, I look at what Saudi Arabia is doing in, in, in terms of uh, the, the Western performers that it's bringing in, the concerts. One could say that's a good thing. On the other hand, they're, as you said, they're also carrying out this uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, plus uh, campaign. I don't, I don't think authorities have won that battle. No, I think they're far, far, far from ever, from ever, ever winning that battle. And they probably want to make themselves feel better by thinking that they've won that battle. But that's just their egos talking. And, you know, I refuse to sort of parent it to their egos and uh, inflated uh, corruptions and big heads and toxic patriarchal masculinity ideals. Yeah, so I guess having someone like Hamid write a story about how their voice is, is the way to insist that their body matters, and I think it's so poetic for him to say that because the voice can mean so many things, especially when you translate it to Arabic salt. And the Arabic language is such a poetic language and, and how so many words can mean so many different things. So I guess for him to say that, and it's just, it's, it's so remarkably uh, poetic because not only just voiced by the literal sense, but voiced and how having our say in what we're in sharing our stories and our voice by saying, you know, having that sense of agency just to take control of what we want of our lives. And yeah, I think that scares all these authorities because they, they want to muffle that. They want to, they want, they want people to sort of, you know, follow their agenda and follow their rules, which is, which is, by human nature, you can't make everyone do that. So I guess the, these authorities, they have not won the battle at all. The queer community, just by our mere existence, is challenging all these authorities. And our mere existence, whether we are actively putting our, our visibility out there or not, is, is subverting so many of the traditional, inverted commas, traditional elements of our culture. And I think that's a great thing because we, our culture is so much more than one that is defined by all these traditional elements. We, we, we have, it's so much more uh, nuanced than that. And the queer community is just one small aspect of, one small part of the culture that's doing its bit to remind people that we're much more diverse than what we think, what you think it is. Um, the, the final essay uh, is a brilliant prose poem by Omar Saka. 
underlined for me again the importance of culture and and the line that struck out for me it's all so easy to say to write down and so much harder to hold on to to turn prayer into practice poetry into a path for the arab lgbtq plus community it's it's a hard path but one that clearly your book shows is bursting with creativity but i wonder for you elias where your path is heading and has it been a hard one for you you mean is it as in like the whole coming out as an arab gay person is that what you mean yeah yeah part of it yeah that's part of what i mean and also i mean yourself headed yeah I mean, yeah, it definitely came with some challenges. And, you know, even though I grew up in the West and I grew up in a city that has this image of being a very, very uh, LGBTQ-friendly city, it's got the biggest Pride event in the Southern Hemisphere, well, one of the biggest Pride events in the Southern Hemisphere. If you, I, think, I think Brazil has the biggest, biggest one. Yeah, so, I mean, even though I had that, grew up in a, in a family that, even, even though my family, we were not particularly that religious, um, we didn't really follow a lot of the traditional culture or traditional gender norms that come with our culture. We, my father was an advocate of, you know, equality. He was, in some ways, he was a feminist. He just never really identified, had the language to identify with that term. Both my parents, especially my dad, they, they're very much left-wing progressive people and they, they both come from working-class families. So I guess, you know, I, came, I come from a... Even though I had the political groundings from my parents to have had that potential to sort of be accepted as coming out gay, there's still the, the stigma of that came with being uh, gay in the culture. There's still the stigma of the fact that me being the son, it reflects on the parents because everything in the Arab culture, or at least in, in my, amongst my family, in the Palestinian-Lebanese circles, everything in, in our culture reflects back on the parents. It's not like when family, friends or relatives talk about me, they'll say my name directly. They won't say, oh, Elias is gay. They will say, you know, the son of Faris is gay or it always goes back to the son of whoever the parent's name is. The, the onus is always on the parents. And it's just the way the Arabic language works. Um, and in some ways, that's the, that's the element of the patriarchy. Uh, just pervasive, just so pervasive in Arab culture as well because it goes back to the father. And how the, there's so much more pressure on the son to carry on the family name and to have children. Because, you know, the whole idea of having a family and the importance of family is drummed into our psyche from such a young age that it's really, really hard to unlearn that and to realise that we can still celebrate who we are, we can still embrace our culture without having to feel like that we've got to meet that cultural pressure of having a family first. And... Even though, even though I, I did feel that pressure of having the, you know, the family is important and, the, and you know, there was a time when I thought I had to get married really early and whatnot, my parents were luckily, unlike other parents, that I, unlike other friends and their parents or other relatives in the family and their parents, where um, the whole idea of personal success was measured by when you got married and how many kids you have before your career and what have you. My parents were on the flip side. They wanted me to focus on my education. They wanted me to focus on my career before I did anything else. So I guess for me, in some ways, it was easy in the sense that I'm very lucky to be where I am now, to have the unconditional support of my family, to have the unconditional love of my mum and my, my siblings and my nephews and nieces and, and even one of my aunts, my, dad, my late dad's sister, to, be, to have their support in some ways is a superpower for me. It's, I feel like any criticism, any criticism that comes my way, that is fine. They, can, they just were basically screaming into, into the void with me. 
okay, but having said that, it, it, it wasn't an overnight thing. It's taken years for it to come to this point. It's taken years for it to feel like, you know, I, um, my husband can easily walk into my mum's house and still feel like she's part of the family without that awkwardness. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, never, I never got around to telling my father. My father died when I was 23 years old. At, at that time, I was just very early in my coming out stages because I started, uh, my coming out journey started when I was 20. And um, I only told my mum when I was about 26 and my aunt, my dad's sister, who's also, also, who's also my godmother and I'm quite close to her, I told her when I, was, when I was about 26 as well. And my nephews and nieces only really found out a few years ago. So, yeah, I guess it hasn't been easy. It's, I feel like there's a constant, constant coming out is a, to, and constantly coming out to different people is a, is a common thing, not just for me but for any, uh, our, or any LGBTQ person. And I feel like it's exacerbated with me because I have that cultural element playing a, a role that just really takes it to a next level. Yeah, but I, like I said, I really stress I'm very lucky and very privileged to be in the part that I, the position I am now because without that, I would not have been able to feel confident in being able to put this book out there. There's nothing worse than the idea of publishing something and then feeling like that your family just won't read it, won't support you. And that's just me, I guess, coming to the showing that I still haven't unlearned that whole idea of how my so much of my identity evolves around my family. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at the same time, I love my family, so I can't, I'm not going to, that's not going to change anytime soon. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I know if, I guess, so for some people, the, the idea of um, being publishing something like this and not having their, the support of their family, it doesn't, would probably, won't, might not phase them as much, or maybe it does, I don't know. But for me, it just felt like I w- it was really important to have that there support, and I'm very lucky with that. Yes, because some of the uh, some of the essays do speak uh, very movingly about you know how their families responded when uh, when they did come out, and and uh, in several cases not supportive at okay. all. Which, as you say, is 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 very very difficult. I mean, it's hard enough as a writer when you bring things out and the hope and the reception that you have for it and, uh, but not to have the support of your family uh, yeah, is difficult. Yeah. And, and uh, as you say, you had that support and that is very important. Finally, Elias, what do you hope for from this era of this queer, aside from becoming a bestseller, which it very much deserves, uh, but what is the single most important thing you want this book to achieve? Number one, like I said before, I, I really want this book to start a conversation, to start a discussion, not just amongst the Arab community, to help combat the stigma around homosexuality and, and anything with regard to the LGBT identity. Uh, not just that, I just, but I also want to create a conversation around in the wider mainstream Western communities for people to realise that, you know, you know, we are people with our own agencies. We are people empowered to be able to tell our own stories in our own terms. We don't need people speaking over us. We don't need people bring hijacking the discourse with their orientalist viewpoints of the Arab world. So I guess I want I guess I want the wider Western community to realise that everything that they've been fed needs to be challenged because uh, a lot of that has a lot of Islamophobia in the undercurrents and also very much an orientalist view of one size fits all, which is not which is not the case. We're so diverse. And I feel like the queer community across the Arab world is a microcosm of the diversity of the Arab world as a whole. And because um, we all have different varying levels of beliefs, whether we're atheists or secular or quite religious. And we all have, we all come from various socioeconomic backgrounds. We all come from 
different, or even the way we speak Arabic is so different. People need to sort of understand that if you're able to look at Western queer communities with the nuance that these communities deserve, then you should be able to do that with communities outside of your own bubble. And when I wanted to challenge that viewpoint of Western exceptionalism that comes to this idea that, you know, LGBTQ people are only able to thrive in the West, which is not necessarily always the case. Um, homophobia and transphobia is, is quite rampant in the West as well. Of course, it might not be as violent as it is in the Arab world, and there's definitely more protections for the community in the West compared to the Arab world. But we can't look at it in a black and white way. We need to sort of look at it with the full picture and look at it with the full nuance it deserves because there are people on the ground who are able to express themselves and be able to enjoy and really live their lives to the full without having to compartmentalise their identities at all. And I think that's really important. Yes, it is, Elias. It most certainly is. I thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the writer and journalist Elias Josh. He's the editor of a collection of essays from 18 contributors. It's called This Arab is Queer, an anthology of LGBTQ plus Arab writers. It's published by Saki, and I cannot recommend it too highly. Since we launched our podcasts in 2020, it's been listened to more than 80,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of mean analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. Thank you.